You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1002 of the Lods on Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, coming to you on a Thursday evening. And today's show is brought to you by Built Bar. Go to builtbar.com, use the promo code LOCKED15, and from there, 15% off on your next order with Built Bar. Today's podcast will be myself and Glenn Willis of Peachtree Hoops. Glenn's always a friend of the podcast. We'll talk about the first two games of Hawks Knicks and some adjustments, some rotation questions, all that fun stuff. And Glenn will be here momentarily. First, though, some news to get to. Uh, first, I guess, in the unfortunate category is that a Knicks fan was banned for life, I suppose. Um, always banned for spitting on Trey Young during Game 2. Obviously, that is indefensible behavior for anyone, goes without saying, I think. And this is sort of the bare minimum for the Knicks to do is ban this player, ban this person, I should say, um, from the building. Um, McMillan did say, talking to the media today on Thursday afternoon, that Young did realize that it happened, and they talked about it after the game. Also, say, also, he said that Trey was shocked about what transpired. Um, Trey did not speak to the media today. He was not one of the uh, players that was selected. So no direct stuff from him on that, but obviously that's unfortunate, and hopefully that will be the last time that happens to anyone. But it's sort of been a rash of incidents around the league. John Morant had one. Russell Westbrook had one as well. Some just terrible fan behavior. Hopefully nothing like that happens in Atlanta over the weekend. Um, on the floor, McMillan said there were some screens that the Knicks were setting in Game 2 that they want the lead to look at. I can't blame them whatsoever for that. There was lots of uh, physicality, we'll say, to be putting it mildly from Taj Gibson and others in the first two games in the series. Also, John Collins said, and I think he tried to walk the line and try not to get fined, but he was expressing some displeasure with some elbows that he's received and some moving screens and stuff like that as well, in addition to the the Nerlens Noel play that made the rounds last night on the trip of Trey Young. Um, On the minutes front, I know people were asking uh, for even more updates on Nate McMillan's comments, so uh, Michael Cunningham of the AJC uh, actually asked Nate, uh, and also had a follow-up as well about the rotation stuff. Not a ton that is new, but I do have the audio to play for you guys. It's a pretty long answer. It's like a two-minute back and forth between Nate and MC um, from the AJC, but uh, I think it was probably good for Hawks fans to hear what Nate has been saying. So here is that audio. This is, again, from post-practice on Thursday afternoon. Yeah, Coach, um, after the game last night, you said that you believed that you know 35 minutes was a lot for your starters. Do you, do you see that as the upper limit for them in this series? No, I didn't say, I mean, that 35 minutes is probably what they average. But, uh, you know, I had some questions about minutes. I mean, guys will play at, as many minutes as necessary. I thought last night uh, our uh, starting unit went uh, deep into that third quarter. Uh, they used a lot of energy in that third quarter, and I needed to give them a breather uh, in the fourth quarter. Um, we were able to... Uh, give them a breather, and uh, they was able to uh, finish that game, you know, somewhat strong. You know, we were down 10 when they came back, but they were able to tie that ball game uh, up with five minutes to go, you know. So thirty, it, there's not a limit on uh, most of our guys as far as uh, the amount of minutes that they can play. I, for me as a coach, I see how my guys are playing and what energy – uh, that they have and the, and the rest that they need. And uh, we try to uh, make sure that they get that so that they can finish the game. How do you balance that, you know, needing them to be fresh with seeing your team struggle the way it did, especially with, with Trey not on the court? 
well, I thought our first unit struggled with Trey on the floor. We only scored 18 points uh, in that third quarter. Um, our first unit uh, basically gave up a 15-point lead with Trey Ben on the floor. So the struggle started before uh, our starters left the floor. When, when those starters were subbed out, uh, we went from a 15-point lead at the start of the third to a tie ball game with two minutes to go in the third. So, you know, you're, you're saying that uh, we struggled because Trey wasn't on the floor. Uh, both units struggled. You know, we only scored 18 in the, in the third, 17 in the fourth. Uh, you know, so it's not, it wasn't one unit uh, that struggled, uh, both units struggled. I think it needs to be said that um, I understand kind of the point of the both units struggling comments there from McMillan is because the second half at that point in time, they were not playing great overall, even with the starters. But for the full game, the Hawks had a sub 60 Yes, a sub-60 offensive rating with Trey and McDonough off the floor. So it was not similar. The bench was notably worse than the starters. And even beyond that, you just need to play your guys more. I know I talked about this a lot last night. I'm not going to dwell on it even more now. We'll get into it with Glenn as well and his thoughts on this. But um, that's the latest from McMillan. I think I would describe that as not being the most encouraging set of quotes, both from last night and today. But at the same time, McMillan's not going to show his hand to the Knicks either. So if he's going to come out and play things differently in Game 3, he wouldn't come out and say that. So we will judge what transpires in game three and beyond uh, sort of with fresh eyes. But there you go. That's the latest people were asking me for uh, even more on that. And uh, MC obliged by asking a couple of questions about it on Thursday. Um, as for the game itself, same injuries for both teams. Uh, not a whole lot going on there. Noel's off the injury report for the Knicks. Uh, so only Mitchell Robinson will be out for New York. Reddish and Goodwin out for the Hawks. Atlanta is a four-point favorite in the game on Friday night in game three, according to our friends at Atlanta AG. And in terms of the series price on Benalana AG, the Hawks are actually minus 145 to win the series. So they are still favored to win the series. That means implied odds of about 59%-ish, almost 60% for the Hawks to win the series. Um, that seems about right to me. I think the Hawks are definitely the favorite at this point in time. After having stole one in New York, that could flip, obviously, in either direction based on Game 3 results. But that's where these se the series are standing right now. And finally, before we get to Glenn, a reminder, and I'll be accused of... Uh, jinx in the Hawks, but I promise you nothing I say is going to impact the Hawks and their outcome on the floor. The Hawks have not lost a home game since April 15th. That's about six weeks ago. It's been a long time. Uh, they were 25-11 at home in the regular season overall and 17-2 and since the All-Star break at home. So uh, obviously they've been playing very well in that home building. There were some favorable matchups in there, but also some pretty pretty good wins as well. As well. You know, Milwaukee, all that stuff. So we will see what happens. They beat Phoenix at home, etc. Uh, that's not going to save everything. It should be a very raucous atmosphere. I'm hoping not too many Knicks fans uh, infiltrate Steve Farm Arena on Friday night, but it'll be uh, plenty to get to, and I will be uh, at the game and then also talking about the game after the fact, as always, on the podcast. All right, we'll leave it there for now, but again, we'll have a new, we'll have a new show after the game. Stay tuned for all of that. Before I bring in Glenn, a word from our sponsor on today's podcast, and the first of which is rockauto.com. 
With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models in the car or truck world, it's now impossible to stock all the parts that you need in a traditional chain storefront. Why would you endure often pointless questioning from someone at a storefront and have to wait while someone at the counter orders the parts on the computer, only choosing the brand that the warehouse happens to carry? You have computers with access to rockauto.com right now, both at home and in your pocket. Rockauto.com is a family business, serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for all the audio and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything you need from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic car or your daily driver, get everything you need, just a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is uniquely and remarkably easy to navigate. Quickly see all the parts available for your car and choose the brands, specs, and prices that you prefer. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or your truck. And from there, you went right locked on in their How Did You Hear About Us box to know that we sent you to them. Amazing selection, reliable low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. I am joined now by good friend of the podcast, writer for Peachtree Hoops, expert, all kinds of things I can say about you, Glenn. Glenn Willis is here. Hello, sir. Well, thanks for focusing on the positive ones. <laughs> there are <laughs> truly plenty of things you can say, but no, thanks for having me and uh, it's an exciting time of year for the NBA uh, universe and uh, always happy to, to talk Hawks with you. Yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, my apologies to Kevin Chenard, your your frequent podcast co-host. Uh I scooped you this evening, so sorry, Kevin. Um, <laughs> at any rate, we are two games in, two Hawks-Knicks. Uh, you know, we've all expressed our takes to this point in time, but uh, I call you regularly, uh, but also especially when I think about, you know, deeper analysis, X's and O stuff, adjustments, and, you know, two games, uh, the, the scene is now shifting to Atlanta beginning on Friday, so it's a good time to sort of take stock, I think, of what we've seen so far. It's one-to-one. Uh, it's been pretty darn even. Uh, both games were close in the final minutes so um you know hot takes are not really the thing at the moment other than just sort of the outside noise but the, the basketball stuff has been pretty interesting so far i guess uh anything surprise you before we dive in is anything stood out to you that we should get into here as in terms of what's happened so far through two games uh, no i um i i mean i predicted that this would go seven games so i would you know be weird if i you know acted surprised that here we are at one one i think it's a good uh, outcome, you know, after two games in New York with the Hawks. But the, you know, the, I think I always look for which coach is going to kind of flinch first. And I don't mean that in a purely negative kind of um, way, but, you know, when Tibbs threw Rose and Taj out there to start the second half in game two, I thought that was him kind of demonstrating that he felt like he needed to do something to, yep. to get his team in, in, in a better place. Um, and then, you know, I mean, it's been talked already that game ended, but like 24 hours ago, and we talked about how long, you know, Trey's out in the second half and things like that. I'm sure we, maybe we'll talk about that some, maybe not, but, but, you know, Tibbs is the one who kind of, you know, went back to the drawing board and, and, you know, switched things up. And that usually is, I think, pretty telling in terms of which coach feels like they have to do that because most coaches are super stubborn. Uh, the Both coaches in this series are on the stubborn side of things, but Tibbs, made that change uh, coming out of the half in game two. And I think that's still worthy. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I think, I think it was offline uh, between you and I talking about this. And I, I might say on my podcast, but it, when you win game one, uh, there's not a whole lot of urgency to make huge changes for game two. Uh, and the Hawks won game one, um, you know, in game two, they pretty much did a lot of the same things. Obviously there were little tweaks here and there. That I'm actually going to ask you about, but you know, no massive rotation changes, no lineup stuff that was drastically different other than just a foul trouble for John Collins. 
but now that they lost a the game, uh, you know, maybe the door opens for some interesting uh, tweaks that Nate could make. Um, I, I guess I'll, I want to start by asking you about the Hawks' defense because that's the area of the floor where they've actually done a pretty good job. The numbers are good in both games, basically, overall. Even in the game two, I stressed this last night, but the Hawks had good numbers defensively for the full game. Now, second half was not quite as good, but it was not a defensive loss, let's say, in game two. It was more of a we-can't-score-the-second-half kind of loss for the Hawks, in my view. But what did you see there, and does it, did anything sort of concern you in the second half because Randall got loose a little bit? That's the one thing that sort of stood out to me was that Randall seemed to find his footing, which is not what the Hawks wanted to see. Yeah, he was able to kind of dribble into space that he likes in, in the second half, and that was... I think that was partly the Hawks not being strong enough with the point of attack uh, with him. And we could talk in a minute about, you know, kind of schematically what the Knicks were doing. Not that it was like super complex. It's Tibbs after all. Um, but basically the, the, the series flow, if I could use that term was game one, the Hawks are really committed to defending the paint. It worked really well for them in the first game. The Knicks struggled to make perimeter shots. That's the, you know, what the Hawks were willing to kind of, see if the Knicks might prove they can make enough perimeter shots that worked out. Um, and then I thought um, the Knicks kind of found a way to take advantage of how um, how little presence the Hawks had on the perimeter and at the point of attack because of, not because they were being dumb or not because they were just <laughs> inherently weak, just because they were so heavily prioritizing the paint uh, in the rim. And, you know, in, the, in that second half, it felt like, like 90% of the possessions they were the Knicks were running their offense they could have run it uh, in the proverbial you know phone booth they were at that left three-point break they were using kind of wedge action to get basically Randall and Rose their best two offensive players into you know ball screen action to clear space either for Randall to face up with the ball out there or get Rose kind of driving toward the paint which is you know where he's best and they just ran it over and over and over and over and they were lifting their best shooter on the weak side off of two screens coming up the top of the key which held Capella away from that action and you know Capella has been coming all the way across the lane when the ball's been uh, you know in the, the hands of Randall or Rose that backside you know kind of shooter lifting held Capella so it was like felt like it was like fourth grade offense the Knicks were running <laughs> but it put Rose and Randall in the exact actions where they are super comfortable attacking it gave Randall space to dribble the basketball toward the rim it put Rose attacking the paint and the Hawks just never found a way to really kind of do anything with that now to your point if we want to look at kind of results from a offensive slash defensive rating standpoint they did fine they did totally fine but this is the Knicks. The Knicks are never going to, you know, well, I should knock on wood, I guess, for Hawks fans. Yeah. Knicks are never going to put up a, you know, a massive offensive rating, but they're not really looking to. They're looking to allow their best offensive players to create their shots, play good hard defense, and that's a result they'll live with. And that's what they got in the second half of game two last night. Yeah, I, I agree. And this is going to seem very simple, but it's also maybe true. I feel like, yeah, Tibbs is very stubborn, but. There is some stubbornness that can pay off for you in a playoff series, and if you find an action that the other team can't stop or that hasn't stopped, you're just there's a benefit to just running it over and over again. I mean, the Hawks that the Hawks did that a little bit in Game One, where they found both Double Dragon and Spain and just like could not be stopped by it. Basically, the Knicks just had no answers, and I think the Hawks got a little bit of that in reverse to what you just said. Like the Knicks kind of has found 
an action. It wasn't complicated, but it worked for them. They got Randall in the middle of the floor, it felt like, a lot more, because the Hawks did a really good job, I thought, shading him and putting him in some tough spots, making him a jump shooter, and he's capable of making some shots, but he had a lot more flexibility where he was getting the ball, um, it felt like. And, you know, between that and Rose both playing more and just being, you know, Rose is good. I mean, I'm not the biggest Rose guy, but he is an effective, especially getting when he gets able to be downhill, like he can be pretty effective. So you surround that with some shooters. And like you said, it's not the most complicated action, but it's not that easy to stop. And they just kept doing it over and over again. And they should have. That's what you're supposed to do. Unless the team stops you, there's a benefit to just being stubborn and just kind of calling it uh, on repeat, I guess. Yeah, I think the difference for me is that the stuff the Hawks are running over and over, especially in game one, you know, that has, you know, second, you know, third, fourth options on, oh, yeah. on every play. True. Where the Knicks is like everything that's <laughs> happening is literally right in front of you. Yeah. Like it's all right in front of you. And that's that. You know, that's the difference. And part of that is, um, you know, Tibbs has a pretty simplex, simplistic approach kind of to everything. And doesn't throw too much mentally at his team ever and it just really wants to you know hold his team accountable to executing some basic stuff executing excellently um but you know the hawks have trey young he's one of the best creators distributors um you know whether it's him scoring or him creating you know shots for someone else the knicks don't have that you know um, and so the Knicks is the Knicks as a team are are kind of a fifth for the way Tibbs thinks about basketball and, and the things that he de- deploys. Um, not that we want to, you know, get on a whole separate topic, but that's been the interesting thing to watch Trey with Nate because Nate has been kind of like Tibbs historically speaking in terms of you know pretty simplistic basic things that he throws out on the court. To his credit, he's been you know a lot more sophisticated this year. Maybe that's his assistant coaches, you know, maybe that's having a guy like Trey that he's never had before. You know, there's a lot that could go into that and probably does go into that. But the reality is, is on one end of the court, you see Trey, you know, seeing every single, you know, player on the court and there's kind of purpose to, you know, what everyone is doing. Not that that's completely untrue for the Knicks, but they, the Knicks aren't trying to trick you at all. Where on the Hawks end of the court, there's a lot of um, kind of sleight of hand because Trey can offer that to his team. And, you know, good on the Hawks coaching staff, including Nate, for, you know, kind of putting that to use. We saw so much beautiful basketball in game one, you know, not not so much uh, in game two, the Knicks defense really kind of took control there. Yeah. And they're, they're obviously quite good on defense and that wasn't a surprise that they made some adjustments Uh, before we move to the other side of the floor. uh, Does anything stand out that like concerns you defensively for the Hawks, like given where they were and how the second half was a little bit more shaky. um, Is that an easy fix to just like, you know, putting them back in that position? Obviously, the series within the series is always like little tweaks here and there, but what would you be looking for in terms of uh, either encouragement or discouragement uh, in game three, game four for the Hawks defensively? Yeah. A, a little bit of the same answer for me and that I still think they're a little sus- suspect at the point of attack. So um, like I pointed out on Twitter in the middle of game two after a Congress first stretch that he, he was a lot better than he looked. Yeah. The moments the moments where it looked bad was when the point of attack defense was bad and they let a ball handler get downhill right and right at him like three three times, I think it was. And then if you go back and look at the fouls that JC picked up, he had, you know, ball handlers like right on him. Sometimes that was a little bit his fault. Sometimes it was more kind of a t- team scheme just not being strong enough at the point of attack and then you're going back to that you know simple action the next ran in the second half they just weren't producing any resistance at that point of that ball screen at all they were like either we're switching it 
or were able to navigate it without a switch, just having the second defender kind of show and then recover back. You know, it was a very, very basic thing. And in my mind, um, if the Knicks are going to use the Randall Rose pairing as kind of a offensive battering ram in the Tibbs style, they've got to present a lot more resistance at the point of where that action is kind of initiated at that ball screen. And I thought that was what was super lacking last night. When the Knicks got offensive rebounds, it's because a ball handler threatened the paint and guys had like Capella and others had to react to the ball as opposed to kind of maintaining integrity um, as a rebounder or what have you. And so to me, my biggest concern and when I'm watching like the first three, four minutes of a game three is what, if anything, has the Hawks coaching staff done um, if they're going to address this schematically, or is it just going to be more of challenging their guys to be stronger and not really changing it schematically? I thought as game two went on their point of attack defense, even it wasn't great to start. It was probably good enough to win the game, but it got worse as the game went on. And then they weren't able to do anything about this super obvious, simple stuff. The Knicks were running no resistance there at all where they initiated it. That's where my big concern is. Yeah. I lie. One more question about defense. Uh, Cause I, sure. I, I meant to ask you this. Uh, I'm not trying to encourage Tibbs to do this. Uh, I want to say that out loud for Hawks fans. They'll get mad at me. Um, I, I've been surprised that they have not more explicitly targeted Trey at times. Um, and just because of the matchups, not that they have these great ISO players, but a few times when it's happened, I remember the one one late in game one where RJ Barrett just kind of went completely through Trey for a very, very easy bucket in the final couple minutes. And that's a pretty interesting example and maybe maybe kind of an outlier, but... Um, is that something that you should that uh, Hawks fans should be concerned about if they just just decide, like, look, we needed to be more intentional because you know I've watched the rest of these playoffs and for instance, like watching that Mavericks Clipper series, um, you definitely see a lot of matchup hunting in that series so far. And you know this is one of the benefits of playing the Knicks, I think, is that they are, they're not going to probably do this as much against Trey. But is that something that you think New York could probably do more and maybe be effective with? I think it's probably unlikely, um, and that the, the simplest explanation for why I think that is, they're just not a, a pick and roll team. And if you like, for example, if you go back to Dallas and the Clippers, they run the hell out of the pick and roll like all yeah. game. And the easiest way to draw a, um, a defender you want to target into that action is to bring him into the screen and try to force the switch there. And I mean, you've seen a little bit of that um, when the Knicks. Um, kind of hunt certain matchups, they tend to use the post more, even with their guards, you know, and kind of use the cross screen and bring, you know, whether it's RJ Barrett or, or in some cases, Rose kind of down more to that mid post area. And with, with Clint Capella being your defensive anchor, that action is close enough to the rim that Clint's going to impact that. I just think it's not really a great way to kind of go at Trey. So I just think by the fact that they don't really incorporate and rely on much pick and roll, it's harder for me to kind of envision what it might look like for them to kind of try to hit Trey hard. Another thing you can do, um, but it kind of relies on pick and roll too, is is to put the guy Trey is defending in the weak side corner, which can force Trey to be the helper at the rim. I don't think that's happened one time. In, in two games. So again, that's typically pick and roll based kind of scheme. And it would be pretty uncharacteristic of the Knicks to kind of go, you know, say using like twice or three times as much pick and roll as they use in a typical game, is, which is what it would look like to me to anticipate that being a thing. So I'm on the side of thinking that's 
not likely to be a problem unless Tibbs really surprises me with bigger changes than we're used to seeing him make. That makes total sense. And I, uh, I was really just, I was asking as a proxy more than anything, because that's a question I got a couple times in the last couple of days, like, you know, is this gonna is this gonna be concerning? And I, I don't think it is as much. Uh, different series, maybe it would have been more, but uh, that's one of the benefits of playing the Knicks, I think, actually, in this spot for the Hawks. Um, all right, before we get to the offensive end of the floor and maybe some rotation discussion later on, a word from our sponsor of today's podcast, and the first of which is BetOnline.ag. BetOnline is the easiest and the fastest way to bet on all of your sports action. Baseball season is definitely here and in full swing. You can track all the action at BetOnline.ag. Plus, in addition to baseball, the NBA playoffs are here, as you're listening to all the time on this podcast. And uh, beyond that, all the latest news, odds, and info for all of your sporting needs. Of course, you have MLB and NBA, and you have NHL, UFC, MMA, golf, tennis, auto racing, horse racing, entertainment bets, all that you can think of. It's all there at betonline.ag. Before the next pitch or dribble, head on over to BetOnline on your laptop and mobile device. Check out all the great sporting news, sign-up bonuses, and contest information that you can find all in one place. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get into the game and get in on the action. Head to the website now or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with BetOnline.ag. That's a 50% welcome bonus if you use the promo code LOCKEDON. The promo code, one more time, is LOCKEDON for a 50% welcome bonus with the site on your first deposit. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Today's show is also brought to you by the good folks at Built Bar. Built Bar is wonderful, as I always say on the podcast, but what is your favorite Built Bar flavor? Did you know that Built Bar has nine delicious flavors, plus the occasional limited time flavor, and... When you talk about Built Bar, it's always a passionate thing for people that really enjoy their own flavors. And if you don't know the flavors, you're really missing out. It's coconut, coconut almond, cherry, raspberry, and many more. There's something for everyone. And my favorite flavor right now, anyway, I have many favorites, to be honest with you. But right now, I'm really loving the peanut butter brownie. That's just one that I'm really enjoying. I like to dive into that as much as possible. I always uh, talk about how much I enjoy Built Bar, and that is the one that I am diving into at this moment in time. If you haven't tried the flavors, though, get a mixed box right now where you get two of each of the nine available flavors at this moment in time. And not only are the Built Bar flavors fantastic, they're also very healthy. Most flavors have 17 grams of protein, 130 calories, only 4 grams of sugar, only 4 grams of net carbs, and a couple others have even more protein if you enjoy that kind of thing. Order today, get that raspberry, mint brownie, or whatever you would like, and if you do it in the near future, you go to BuiltBar.com, use the promo code LOCKED15, 15% off your first order with Built Bar. Use promo code LOCKED15, 15% off at BuiltBar.com. All right, Glenn, let's shift to the offensive end of the floor. Um, I'm curious what you think of the shot quality, basically, because I think everybody knows the Hawks missed a bunch of good looks down the stretch. The second half, I don't think, was representative of just you know, being terrible offensively, they just missed a bunch of shots. And it wasn't just that, but they, they did, quite obviously, especially late. A bunch of makeable looks from Magdanovich and Hunter, etc. Um, beyond that, though, this is, anybody can read the box score, including me. Uh, what did you think of the way the offense operated in Game 2 when compared to Game 1? And is it something to be a little bit concerned about because the Knicks obviously um, fixed some stuff? Yeah, that's where, honestly, my biggest concern is. And after a rewatch today and then kind of going back um, through um, the way that I kind of turned my rewatch, which was uh, not a super scientific one, but were just notes and things like that. But the Hawks just did basically the simplest thing to point at is they didn't generate any lobs at the rim in the half court. Like, I don't think one. Um, well, I think there was that one Hunter tried to hit Capella in the fourth quarter, but... He had, I mean, understandably, he had like no chemistry <laughs> with with Capella, and they couldn't quite connect on that. But apart from that, I, it's it's hard for me to kind of remember what I'm, I'm sure I'm missing something there. 
But basically, the Knicks were doing a lot of what the Hawks did in game one, which was just pulling everybody in the paint and then challenging the Hawks to, you know, make perimeter shots. And the Hawks, Trey couldn't get in there, really, apart from a few exceptions. And and more so to try to keep Trey out, um, the Knicks were pulling their weak side help defenders in really early and really denying any path at all for either Capella or Collins to kind of get to the rim. And in my mind, uh, they I thought they generated – when I went back and looked uh, at the game a second time, I thought their perimeter shots that they got were more of a mixed bag than a bunch of good looks. I think there were definitely some good looks, but when I rewatched it, I, I saw more rush shots. I saw more kind of tight space. Uh, I saw more dribbling into shoot shots than you would kind of normally think. And so I thought the Knicks kind of did a good job of not not just accepting – that the Hawks were going to get perimeter shots by way of them pulling extra defenders in the paint, but also impacting the quality of those shots um, just by being strong on closeouts and working over screens hard um, and things like that. And in my mind, with my own kind of personal experience um, with a game which has nothing to do with the NBA, <laughs> but when you when you can't get easy points, you know your perimeter shots feel super important and there's more weight on them because you kind of maybe know even if it's in the back of your mind that that's where your offense is going to come from and that creates more pressure on your shooters and so i in my mind getting you know the hawks really do live on you know generating easy points at the rim through what trey can do with a high pick and roll with great lob threats like capella and collins and the knicks just shut that down and throughout the whole game the Hawks have never found a way to get that going again and that's going to be a massive part whether the Hawks can kind of unlock their offensive potential going forward is if they can find some way to open up their um, their shots at the rim the way that they did so successfully in game one. So I'm concerned that they never, from my view, they never tried anything to open that back up. They seem resigned to, okay, if they're going to pack the paint like this, we're going to generate perimeter shots. Um, that's, I mean, that's a fairly defensible way to think about things like okay you take what the other team gives you that's a you know cliche in sports as much as any cliche in sports and i think that's what they did and and it's like that's terrible but i just think if you just kind of give up on trying to create the easy points you're making um things a lot harder on yourself and that i'm curious to see in game three if they find some wrinkle or adjustment to kind of open that part of their office back up yeah that, that all makes sense i i think that um you know, they, they scored 20, 28 points in the paint in the whole game, which is, I understand why, um, and there were a lot of good looks, but that's not a number that anybody would like. I think that if you gave Nate McMillan true serum, he would not enjoy 28 points in the paint. Like, that's just not a number that you like. Um, and yes, they probably should have made more than 12 of 44 from three, but in my mind, I saw a lot of tweets, especially like at halftime or whatever, about like, you know, the Haw- if the Hawks were just shooting their normal percentage, they'd be up by 20, and it's thinking, well, if you watched... The looks like they were decent looks, but I think if you're just trying to even not even out a little bit, yeah, should they have made three or four more threes? Probably, but they weren't like just getting ridiculous looks uh, throughout the game either. Um, there were a few like obviously that you know the, the two that Hunter missed in the final few minutes were just like wide open shots and he missed them. And like Donovich is not going to shoot two of thir- thirteen very much, but it happens and you have to have other counters. And you know I I am curious to see how they try to get more into the paint. Also, you know, part of that's potentially Collins not playing a lot, but also he had two shot attempts, and Nate kind of got a little bit 
I don't know if defense is the right word, but he was asked um, either today or yesterday about Collins not getting a lot of uh, you know offensive touches and things. He kind of just pivoted to- towards his minutes, and it's like, well, even if you acknowledge that he didn't play very much, he took two shots. They were both threes in 15 minutes. Like he's not a guy that should be taking no two point attempts in 15 minutes of play. Um, not at all. Yeah, it's just very, weird. and that's just one guy. Obviously, Capella's had, Capella's had the same problem. Like they had not been able to get much of Capella either. And offensive rebound, he's not been his normal destructive self. So, um, I guess I don't. Even, I'm not even sure what the question is, but like, Collins and Capella not doing a ton around the rim is by design by the Knicks. It feels like, but also that's something that I don't. I'm not sure you could you, you could just afford to just cede to them. Like you need, you need to get those guys, particularly Collins, I think, involved more. Yeah, uh, um, this is not a f- official stat keeping, but according to the notes I took, Bogdanovich was four for four inside the restricted area. And Bogdanovich is not some awesome finisher in the rim. He's fine. No. Probably he's probably average finisher maybe uh, there if that. Um, and as a team, they were ten for fifteen. So that means non Bogdanovich was six for eleven, and Clint was two for four. And to your point, Collins had no touches there. Now, what one thing that um, did kind of develop in the second half, especially in the fourth quarter, was that Bogdanovich kind of found a way to dribble the ball into the paint and allow. Clint to seal off the big man. I mean, Clint worked his tail off in this game in ways that I, in ways I thought didn't get noticed as much, at least on the broadcast and things like that. But Bogdanovich found a way to get to the rim um, using all the Clint's hard work, sealing off help defenders, especially the big man. That that's that's the story of how he went four for four there. Um, and, and maybe that's something that if if they if you can't get your big man you know to the rim as a lob threat, you use him in the paint, stealing off all you all the help defenders, and maybe we see more of that. You know, in game three um, is deploying Capella and Collins um, like that. Capella probably less so; he stays on the perimeter. But you know, it, the 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 point I'm thinking trying to make is. It doesn't always have to be a lob attempt for your big man to be creating an impact, helping generate shots at the rim. If the Knicks just absolutely flat refuse to allow them to dive to the rim, there's other things you could do. And we small we saw a small sampling of that from Bogdanovich and Capella. So that's another thing I'll, I'll have my eye on is if the guards can take advantage of um, you know the traffic that the bigs can create um, near the rim if they're not be allowed to dive to the rim. Yeah, uh, well, there's so many things to check in on for game three and game four. Um, all right, I guess I have to ask you by law about the rotation stuff because that's been the number one topic. Um, I'll just say this. Uh, the Hawks had a sub-60 offensive rating with the bench, um, and that's anytime Trey or Bodanovich were off the floor together. By the way, those guys played exactly the same amount of minutes. They mirrored each other the entire game, which is interesting. Um, so I'll open it up. I'm not going to say anything else. What are your thoughts on deployment of the rotation, uh, both Trey's minutes, how it's been done, the second unit, like wherever you want to go with this, uh, anything standing out to you? Because obviously my mentions are full with that. And I had a, you know, a couple of rants myself, but I'll, I'll stay out of the way for this one. Yeah. I mean, I was, I think as, as frustrated as, as anyone. Um, and, you know, if I, if I allow myself to zoom out a little, a little bit, Big picture, a lot of coaches don't tighten the rotation until they get to about game four. Until they lose. In a series. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. right. Um, and so that's not crazy uh, from that kind of macro level you know, perspective to me. Is that, that From that angle, it's not crazy. 
um, on the road to have a chance to go 2-0 to see the Knicks in a few minutes kind of seemingly take control of the game and then to not kind of respond and get your best player on the court to try to you know wrestle that back with urgency that's the one that I couldn't kind of get my head around um and you know I I know that with the Hawks second unit is going to kind of fall to Lou and Gallo to kind of, you know, score, you know, um, with that group. Um, because that's, those are the two creators that they have um, kind of playing on that group. And I don't know. I, I don't know if it ever got talked about that, you know, was Gallo tired because, you know, Collins had to go to the bench, like basically a couple minutes in the game, yeah, you know, Gallo play played a for a long time. Yeah. So that, that could be a part of it too, but that should, uh, that would hopefully factor into when you start kind of, you know, making some substitutions and things like that. And then the other thing was when McMillan finally reacted early in the fourth quarter, not early enough in the fourth quarter to be specific, he sent McDonovitz to check in by himself. And that was his reaction, not Trey, not Trey and McDonovich. And I don't know if that was noticed. I I noticed it because I had kind of a visceral reaction. Like, I cannot believe that McDonovich is at the table <laughs> yeah, checking I, in. And I didn't see Trey. it. Uh, you mentioned it to to us in Slack. I, I didn't notice that. because I think in part because it didn't end, end up happening, obviously. They ended up, right. there was a timeout, and they brought them both back in. But, yeah, if I had noticed that, and I did on, on the rewatch, uh, that is interesting. To be, I'm not sure if he just, I mean, one of the theories I heard, I think it was on a national outlet. I can't, my apologies, I don't know who it was, was that, uh, you know, Nate is just going to defer to Lou because Lou's a vet, and he's going to just play Lou a certain amount of minutes because he trusts Lou. Right. And I, I guess that's a theory that makes sense to me, but it also is one that I hate. <laughs> if that's actually true, I, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, and that's not even a Lou thing. It's just that this is a, this is a playoff series and your best player is a point guard. Um but yeah, I, st- I stopped you mid thought there, but I-, I thought that was interesting what you pointed out to me because I don't think he was going back to Trey there unless there was a stoppage and there was one, but it was uh, not the plan it seemed like. Yeah, and and I mean it'd be interesting to to hear what we would hear if like we could give you know Nate true serum, but Trey Trey wasn't getting into the heart of the Knicks defense, and I mean he Trey, we haven't talked about the fact that Trey made basically all of his long threes except the last one he. You tried in the fourth quarter, it seemed like anyway. And it, that's great for the scoreboard. That helps you for sure with the when the ones he takes go down. But to me, that was just another point of emphasis around the fact that he wasn't penetrating, you know, the paint. He wasn't getting in the heart of the defense. And I wonder if Nate was like, hey, if you know, if Lou is at least getting in there, then maybe ride Lou a little more like he did in game one when Trey basically by all reports went to Nate and said, ride Lou, Leave you know, and, yeah. you know, so, you know, I mean, who, who knows? Um, but it's not like Trey was like, you know, dicing them up and like he was in game one in terms of creating all of these awesome uh, shots. Um, he was still productive and really good. And he did his part in terms of producing the offense that his, you know, from a kind of composite standpoint that this team needed from him. So I'm not being critical of Trey. This is the Hawks and the coaching staff needing to react to encounter, you know, the adjustments that the Knicks made. So I don't want this to come across as me being critical of Trey. Trey no. found a way to give his team what they needed from him. But in terms of like, did Nate have confidence? Like if I throw Trey back out there, it's going to open up everything that's not available to us right now. Uh, if Nate was like, you know, I didn't have that confidence, I kind of, I kind of maybe get that angle, but, but the reality is, is that, um, you know, if I watch 
you know, all of the guys that people compare Trey to, like when when Dame Lillard, when the Blazers are down in the second half, Dame will play 22 minutes in the second half. He'll play the whole fourth quarter with only like a two-minute break. And you can kind of go on and on. You've seen Kimba play, you know, 20. Kimba's even, you know, kind of of Trey's stature, and he, he'll play 21 minutes and, and a half. When, the, when that's needed for the best player and their best creator to be on the court, um, Nate has a reputation that's, I think, well-founded as him being on the stubborn side of things. Now, again, I think we touched this earlier, but most coaches are, you know, so I don't, yeah. don't want to act like that's an outlier. It's not an outlier. Um, but at the same time, I'll watch plenty of other games with other teams that are like four, five, six seed kind of in that range where, you know, teams in, in, at that seeding level have a heavier reliance typically on their stars than like first and second seeds that typically have two or three of those guys or whatever. And those teams typically will ride those key kind of offensive alphas, you know, as much as they can up to like 21, 22 minutes. And I think this series is going to be tight the whole way. I think every game is going to come down to like the final three minutes. I would enjoy a Hawks blowout if, if they could find a way to kind of get one of those as much as anybody, but I'm preparing myself for all the, every one of these games be tied at the end. And, you know, I, I think Trey, yeah, I think it's fine to sit him four minutes, five minutes in the first half. In the second half, when it's tight the whole way, I have a hard time stomaching, you know, him being off for that long, especially if the Knicks are developing some momentum, getting some sort of control of the game and he's not there. And Nate is just kind of sticking with the script that, that yeah. that's kind of my reaction. So I, I that was kind of wordy, but it's, it's hard to kind of hit on everything. No, it's, there's a lot going yeah. on. And, and, you know, to your point there, like in, in game one, you could at least credibly say that Lou had it going. Cause he did like Lou, Lou had it going in the second half in, of, of game one. And they ended up writing that it worked out. Okay. Um, but you could not say that in game two, like Lou did not have it going in game two. And uh, it wasn't just Lou, but they were not, you know, they were unable to score with the bench on the floor in game two. And it didn't matter. And it was just basically, this is oversimplifying a little bit, but it really was a regular season rotation. Now, people have misinterpreted me when I say that because, for one, the Hawks didn't have this rotation available to them really at any point in the regular season. But if they had, if I told you, Glenn, that the Hawks had this available roster available to them, on the, you know, seventh to last game of the season, and they played the exact rotation that they, that they played in game two of the playoffs, it, would that have been a surprise to you? I don't, it would have been for me. Like, that would have been a very normal rotation for a game in April. Not at all. And yeah, that, yeah, exactly. it, should, it shouldn't be that way. I mean, you have to make an adjustment on some level, and that's, again, that's too simple, but you should be able to tell this is a playoff game, both in minutes for your starters and also not play your bench unit together, all that stuff. I guess, um, we don't have to do too much on this, but... Is there anything that you would, other than just like playing guys more, which I think is a pretty easy fix, um, is there any like staggering you would do? There's something I want to see them try, for instance, is like maybe don't pair Trey and Bogdanovich completely together the entire game. It doesn't have to be a full stagger, but I don't really understand why they are pairing them so closely together. Um, that's just one example, but is there anything, anything like that standing out to you in terms of like a pretty easy fix other than just like, you know, play guys more? Because that's, that's an easy one, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and no, I agree with you. I I see the the Bogdanovich Trey pairing a little differently. Is I uh, I and th- this I don't know that there's there's certainly not like a scientifically right and wrong answer to this, but I think I lean toward wanting to see those two together basically all the time because with the the way that 
Knicks throw extra defenders at Trey, especially like at ball screen, especially in game two, having your second best creator on your team on the court with him, I think just gives you a, a better chance to punish that and to make something of those opportunities. Now that said, I, I wonder, yeah, and I, I'd be curious what your response is. I wonder if the adjustment might be to get Hunter and or Collins some time on the second unit, because those are basically your, um, depending on where you stack Gallo, but in terms of where you can go to for offense, Hunter and Collins might be your third and fourth best players. Um, Gallo is a unicorn, so we can kind of, Gallo is useful anywhere <laughs> offensively right. speaking, you know, but, you know, Hunter's face-up game, Hunter's opportunity, um, the his effectiveness um, maximizing opportunities where he can get um, a defender, maybe a smaller defender, kind of on his back down in the mid post, and and then you know even with JC's JC's good on the right block with that inside pivot on the left, you know getting to the middle, and you know when the Knicks have you know maybe Obi on the court and you know whoever else out there, I wonder if the adjustment might be to swing Herder a little more minutes with Trey McDonough and swing Hunter and Collins more minutes. With the second unit, um, I, I don't know how much Lou as the point guard can get you into the Hunter and Collins stuff. I mean, he's a veteran; he knows how what he's doing. Uh, but it's not that not that he can't do it, but that's just not what's typically asked of him. No, you know. Um, but I have no doubt he can he can do it. So for me, I'm curious if the right tweak is more how, more Hunter Collins on the second unit, which creates a little bit more overlap with Herder. Um, on the first unit with Bogdanovich and Trey. And those three uh, were quite good in game one in the minutes that they shared the court. What what that creates a, a challenge on the defensive end. Yes. Um, you know, that you have to figure out. But but if, I guess my point is if, if the offense kind of feels like it gets bogged down or if they're not able to, like in game two, to generate the kind of um, uh, shot profile that they want and the opportunities that they want. I wonder if that's a tweak that might be um, um, a likelier path to getting some things unlocked than than staggering Trey and Bogdanovich. And that's not me saying that staggering them is a horrible idea. Uh, that's just the that's the what I look at and, and wonder if that might be um, one of the better options without shooting down the other ones. But uh, you, what do you, do you have thoughts on Hunter and Collins kind of getting more? of the opportunities when the, you know, so-called tech units on the court offensively. Yeah, I wouldn't mind that at all. I, I think especially, you know, the challenge that we haven't seen in a ton together. So innate likes familiarity in roles, but I think Collins could really help Lou um, as the, as a diaphragm that he just hasn't played with. I mean, I know, I know a Kong Wu and Lou have some pretty decent chemistry, but a Kong was just not quite there in this series for that. I think we all know that. Um, and maybe having John be more of an emphasis on the second unit would, would be helpful. And also to your point about the about the uh, playing Herder with Bogdanovich and Trey, this is a series where that trio may not kill you defensively in a way that it might in some other series because right. the Knicks don't have a guy. I mean, Derrick Rose is is a good player for sure, but they don't have like the alpha the alpha perimeter player that's going to just torch that in a way that some other some, some others might. And that that I think would work. Plus, I know this is actually I'm, I'm stealing from you here on this podcast. I, I think Tony Snell playing with the starters is better than Tony Snell playing with the bench. Um, I, Tony Snell does not give you much playing with Lou Williams. Um, all, all respect to Lou, Lou is not going to be able to create the shots that Tony succeeds with. And I'm not saying you you, you care to Tony Snell. I'm not I'm, I'm not saying that because he's he's obviously like your ninth man in the series. But if he's going to play a decent amount, he doesn't really give you anything offensively without someone like Trey 
setting him up. Um, because Tony is a standstill jump shooter. That's kind of all he does. So that's a tweak too. Like not that you again are catering to Tony, but maybe just maybe some mixing up. And I think if everything right now is kind of catered to knowing you're going to play a second unit together and like kind of building that together. And I just think that's thrown out the window at this point. Like some of that's just playing more guys. Some of that is playing um, sort of intentional groups, but Long story short, I agree it would not be a bad idea to try Hunter and or Collins a little bit more at the bench with Lou. And also, that and that might actually shift you into maybe you throw Snell on the court with Trey for five minutes. Because right now, they're not playing together hardly at all, if at all. And that's one thing, because they're obviously trying to steal some minutes with, with Tony along the way. They've chosen him over Solo in that role as the basically the fourth wing, fifth wing. And... If you're going to do that, you might as well try to maximize it a little bit. And if that means Herter playing with uh, starters, however you want to do it, you can get away with some certain stuff in the series that you couldn't otherwise, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, and I think that if you wanted to balance, especially Herter having some time with the starting backcourt um, and some time with the second unit where you get a second creator there, that Snell might be a solution there. To, and to be fully transparent, you're not um stealing really from anyone uh and it's not my necessarily my original idea andrew uh, kelly and kevin chenard and others at peace Hoops have been pushing for we, we're all yelling about us in slack all the time so that's why that's why yeah. that's why yeah. i'm saying i just i, I, I definitely don't want to put it out there as if, like this is a glenn's idea no, no not no. true um it's it, others have been pushing for it but i i agree with others that um snell can be maximized with trey um, I, I do think Snell and Bogdanovich are a little hard, a little tough of a defensive fit because they both both basically do the same thing. Well, there's they're bigger, stronger uh, guards, if you will. Um, in fact, I, I don't think Hawks fans even realize how like massive Tony's, Tony Tony Snell is. Snell is like I, I I'm fairly confident Tony is the same height as John Collins. I've seen him on the court with like for example Kongwu and Collins. And I said to myself, I think Tony Snell is the biggest. He might be right taller. Now. Yeah, I was gonna. He, he might be taller and longer than either of them, which yeah. is funny to say, but because he is a wing, it's not like he's gonna be suddenly playing the five for you. But uh, yeah, to, to your point, I think I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yes, I mean Snell, some time with Trey and Bogdanovich, I think would help as long as you can kind of sort that out defensively, especially if you can catch that before Rose comes on. I think that's really something that you can work with there. Um, because I think it's a little harder to play that trio once Rose comes on. I mean, you you kind of um, you kind of need Herder or Hunter on the court if Rose is on the court. Like, right? They they don't want Trey guarding Rose, and I think they don't want Bogey guarding Rose if they can help it. Like, I think your your two best options against Rose are Hunter, who also is guarding Randall, which is hilarious. Like, Hunter's probably the best guy on both Rose and Randall in this series, which right. is uh, impressive if you think about it that way. But yeah. uh. Rose is a challenge for basically anybody, but Herder did a pretty good job on him, actually, I thought, in game two. But Herder and Hunter are kind of guys there. I think Herder's probably done the best job, probably, on him, considering that Hunter hasn't been available to really kind of be on Rose, apart from when there's been some switches, you know, and things like that, especially that Rose Randall kind of ball screen. Hunter got messed up with Rose sometimes, but that was not strategic, you know, kind of on the Hawks part to put him there. But I think there's something there to getting Snell some more time with Trey, uh, splitting Herder's time with the you know first and second unit um, backcourt and things like that, and then it, also Snell's size and the way he's a uh, you know I think it's in a sneaky way 
a helpful rebounder and a helpful kind of help defender at the rim and in the paint just because of his size and his presence. And when you are playing a, like Collins at the five, for example, um, you know, Snell kind of gives you a little bit more there. So if you, if in the minutes where maybe Capella comes off for a rest and Trey and Bogdanovich are still on, if you go um, Snell, Hunter, Collins, that just that extra size on the wing, I think kind of gives you something um, there. So I, I think I think you're right, and I think the other guys in, in our Slack who've been talking about it um, <laughs> are right that there's something that there's a way to rework the rotation to create you know some different combinations. Which kind of leads me to the point of the weirdest thing that Nate is doing, in my opinion, is playing full bench units. And I would challenge your listeners to go watch go watch as many playoff games as you can. No one does this. Tell me, you tell me when you see a full five, you know, guys off the bench playing on the court, especially with no like no. I mean, no foul trouble. I mean, I know they had Collins in game two, but it wouldn't matter. Like the they're actually like planning to run full bench units for three, four, five minutes at a time. And that's, that's, you don't, no one does that. It just doesn't happen in the playoffs. I don't know. It's true. And to me, I mean, I, I, if you ask me like, Glenn, was it weirder to see Nate put Bogdanovich at the table without Trey? Or is it weirder to see, you know, five reserves on the court together for, you know, prolonged stretches. It is definitely the latter. It is definitely the, <laughs> yes. the full bench unit. Go, go watch Blazers games and tell me how many minutes you see without either Dame or CJ. Well, and they're you playing. Know? They're playing eight guys, seven guys. I mean, the Hawks right. are already playing. I've made the point too. Like, I think playing ten is a lot. It's not completely indefensible on the surface. Um, my my issue is the same one you uh, same one you're having is like. Playing 10 isn't the problem inherently. It's playing those five together. That's the problem. I just don't... And honestly, they haven't been killed yet. And I want to stress, yet, with that unit. They're like minus five or six or something total. It's not like a disaster. They're definitely in the negative. And I think that might embolden him to keep doing it. But I, I hope not. But it's just... It always felt feels like they're teetering, too. Like, they get, they've had some shooting luck, I think, in those groups. And they're still getting beat, which is not a good sign. Yeah, and and I I think based upon conversations we've we've had, you'll agree that the shoot the shooting variance has helped that unit survive. The Knicks just just Definitely. happened to miss shots. Yep. Uh, when that group's been on, um, and so I I I expect that to not be a great approach for for uh, for Nate going forward. Um, you know. I, the way that I try to think about these things is I, I try to give the, I, you know, I try to be, I try to critique in a way that's helpful to yes. people that read my writing or whatever it might be, but to also acknowledge that he's an NBA coach and I'm not. And so to maybe, you know, kind of give a bit of the doubt. So what I'll say is this, is that in my mind, if the rotation doesn't tighten as this series goes deeper game by game, that's going to be the thing that is really an outlier. I mean, we, we can sit here and say, I personally think it's a terrible idea and that may have a certain amount of weight or not. <laughs> yeah. But when I, we can look at it and say, that's an outlier, that's not normal. That's clear. And, you know, so if we get to, you know, game four and he's still doing this, it, if he's, you know, we get to game five and he's still, you know, playing Trey 35 minutes, I think that's a problem. Yeah, I think that's the problem, but it's for sure an outlier. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I think it's implied. And I hope I hope people listen to this always know that like I'm I don't ever think that I'm smarter than Nate McMillan about basketball. I know you feel the same way. Like it's sure. part of it's part of my job to 
throw out my opinion and critique things, but uh, at no point do I think that I know more than David Miller does. But I, I just don't think this th- th- this makes a lot of sense. And I think the outlier point's a good one. Even if you don't like hate it, we can all acknowledge this is not something that normally happens. If you if you read people around around that you know cover the game nationally and pay attention or listen to them, it's an outlier. It just is. Like you, I would. I would encourage you, as Glenn already did, to go and look if you are challenging on this. Not a whole lot of that. I mean, guys, play, you know, rotations being ten deep in the playoffs is almost an outlier at this point. Um, yeah. But playing five, play five bench units is, is definitely, uh, yeah, definitely there. Um, I don't want to go too deep into this. We can do it. We can do it all day. But um, I don't know. <laughs> I think game three will be interesting. Um, you know, it's they they've lost. So that usually, or at least sometimes, is an impetus, as we saw with Tibbs, as we said earlier, um, to change some stuff if you need to, if you start falling behind or whatever else. So maybe that pushes them to make some changes they wouldn't make otherwise. But obviously a big weekend, and they're playing two games within like 38 hours of each other because they play Friday night and then actually Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock. So we're going to learn a lot in a very short period of time. We we sure are. And, you know, if the Knicks are going to – continue clogging the paint, not letting Capella and Collins kind of dive there. The baseline's wide open. I I don't remember the last time a Hawks wing cut along the baseline to the rim. (laughs) I mean, the actions that they run don't set up for that. It would have to be ad hoc and kind of improvise and things like that. But, you know, it's the playoffs and you you have dedicated time to kind of work on these things. And so it's going to be interesting to see if the Hawks coaching staff kind of finds a way to attack all of that free space on the baseline that they're getting. Maybe it's just the corner threes that they generate, which is a great shot. That's great. Sure. Um, but to create an even higher percentage shot at times is maybe to have uh, someone kind of, uh, you know, cutting along the baseline to the rim. It, that's not in their normal bag, so to speak. It but, uh, you know, there's a lot to, to watch the first five minutes of game three that I have my eye on. And, um, you know, looking forward to the game getting here. And, um, I, you know me, Brad, I'm a, generally a happy and kind of optimistic person so i'm trying i'm trying to believe that i might be pleasantly surprised um by some of the kind of tweaks come game three we'll see if i'm if uh my optimism has led me astray <laughs> as it has once or twice in my life but i'm gonna go into the game kind of eager and excited to kind of see what happens and, and we'll for sure you know see what they come out with yeah i think it'll be a uh, it'll be a fun atmosphere um it'll be raucous there's stakes uh i think the hawks are still the better team and the better team at home there's a reason why they're favored in this game and it's because they're the better team at home i think but we'll see how they respond uh young team first uh i think it's some different jitters obviously there's jitters on the road playing in that crazy atmosphere in new york but you come home now in front of your friends and family and stuff it might be a little bit different so we'll see um glad i took up way too much of your time so i appreciate all the time you've just given me um i think you are writing about game three if i remember correctly I am. um so that'll be coming up easterhoops.com if anything else that you want to share please do i would encourage people to follow Glenn on twitter where he uh teaches me things all the time but other than that glenn share anything that you'd like before we get out of here yeah i mean you know yeah no uh read my stuff at peace Street hoops i uh, read all of our stuff at peace Street hoops not just me They're doing a great job i think even if i'm a little biased covering uh this this series um, on Twitter, I do tend to lean a little bit more, or if not more than a little bit, towards kind of technical content um, and such. But I, I try to show my personality now and then to do <laughs> and have a little bit of fun. Um, a little duality there and stuff like that. But the, yeah, I mean, Peace Your Hoops Twitter is where you can basically kind of get all my stuff. I'll, I'll make random appearances on other podcasts as well. But if you follow me on Twitter, 
uh, you'll see uh, what all those um, other random appearances are from time to time. There you go. I would recommend that at the highest level. Follow Glenn. I will beg him to come back on my podcast at some other point. Uh, he is regularly on ATL 29 with the uh, arch rival of this podcast, Kevin Chenard. Um, no, Kevin's great. At any rate, thank you, Glenn. Uh, as for everybody, everybody else, uh, please subscribe to the podcast, and we will see you after the game on Friday night.